was crystal clear that this man was a perpetrator of child sexual abuse. The church was aware of it, and he continued to have access to youth in the church. Welcome back to Parallel Justice, the podcast that dives into the crimes and cases that have dominated the national headlines through exclusive interviews with the very attorneys who fought the cases. Some of the discussion you hear today may be controversial. However, we know that silence, especially on tough issues, only enables and encourages wrongdoers. It's our goal to bring these issues to light so that we may have meaningful discourse around them. The views expressed in this podcast are those of our guests, who are experts in these areas. Their opinions are invaluable, however, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center for Victims of Crime. The topics we discuss may be disturbing, and they are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics may also be triggering, and we encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. I'm Renee Williams, Executive Director of the National Center for Victims of Crime, and your guide through this conversation. Now, let's start the show. Welcome back to another episode of Parallel Justice. I am your host, Renee Williams. Today, we have a repeat guest with us, Peter Jancy out of Oregon from the law firm of Jancy and Crew. Peter's here to talk with us today about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, otherwise known usually as LDS or Mormons. And before we get into this discussion, I just want to acknowledge, as I always do before we talk about a specific church or religious beliefs, This is not meant as an attack on religion. Nothing, Peter, nor what I say is an attack of LDS fundamentally and truly held religious beliefs. What we are doing is an examination of individuals who have been using religion as a shield to commit abuses and hide behind religious beliefs to hide the fact that they are actually perpetrating crimes. So with that, I want to give Peter first a chance to just reintroduce himself to our Parallel Justice listeners. Well, thanks, Renee. Good to be here with you. Um, Again, I'm Peter Jancy from Crew Jancy Law Firm in Portland. Our firm is exclusively focused on representing victims of sexual violence, primarily victims of child sexual abuse. And um, most of our cases are involve abuse that was enabled or allowed uh, by, uh, you know, the institutional setting. Um, We have handled a lot of cases involving large religious organizations um, and although most folks uh, usually think of the Catholic Church as, you know, when, when we say that phrase, which we've handled a number of cases involving the Catholic Church, but we've also handled a lot of cases involving um, the Mormon Church and Seventh-day Adventist Church and other other religious organizations. So pleasure to be here with you today. Now, let's just set the table because I think there are a lot of misconceptions about the Mormon church. And like many religions, there are several branches that are offshoots of this church and each has its own different belief. Can you give us kind of an overarching view of the LDS church and their beliefs? Sure. Um, with the caveat that I, I'm, I'm not a member, I've never been a member of the Mormon church. And uh, so my my knowledge and understanding is based on um, what I've learned from working on cases on behalf of victims. Um, you know, I think when we use the term Mormonism, we're talking about a larger movement that has several different churches under that umbrella. Um, you know, the most commonly and, and, and the most prolific and largest um, Mormon church is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah. 
but um, for many under the um, banner of you know the term Mormonism or the Mormon movement, there are also several other churches, um, the Fundamentalist um, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, and some other similar offshoots um, that have uh, you know smaller followings and in some ways, uh, probably what would widely be seen as maybe more extreme beliefs or, or adherence to practices that have been abandoned or disregarded by the primary, you know, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Utah. And I think it's important to point out that most of the the really newsmaking abuses, the Warren Jeffs of the world, are members of the offshoots of, of FLDS that aren't necessarily recognized or embraced by the mainstream Mormon church. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think there's a lot of um, popular culture focus on um, the fundamentalist church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and some of the other more, um, the offshoots, um, you know, the, the, the LDS church or the TCJC as it is asking to be called now, which is based in Salt Lake City, is uh, distances itself from those um, offshoots. Uh, and I think there's there's popular interest in in the offshoots because of course um, all these Mormon sects um, uh, share a common history and uh, a, you know a common origin story and so I think there are questions in a lot of people's minds about how separate or different they are and and uh, when it comes to some of the concerning phenomena you know although they may be more prevalent prevalently discussed regarding the fundamentalist offshoots, you know, there's, I think there are questions about, well, what's going on with the mainstream Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So let's start to talk about that. You're representing victims in some of these cases. What happened here? Well, the most recent case that we um, have been handling that uh, garnered a fair amount of media attention is a case out of our home state of Oregon. Um, and in that case, our client who has decided to use his name, David Heiser, um, decided to file a lawsuit against the National Church out of Salt Lake City based on abuse that he suffered in Corvallis, Oregon um, in the uh, late 1970s and 1980s. And um, this case has garnered a lot of national attention when we filed it because um, essentially well, for I think for a couple of reasons. One is Mr. Heiser is still, or, or at least at the time of filing, was still a devout member of the LDS Church, which is fairly unusual um, to have folks who are, you know, active members in good standing bring lawsuits against the church. And I think what motivated Mr. Heiser was the egregious facts of of what he learned about what had happened in his situation, which was, um, you know, in a nutshell that. The perpetrator that abused him, who held positions of trust with youth in the church, um, had been reported, uh, was known to have been a, a sexual abuser, in fact, was convicted of uh, child sexual abuse crimes um, prior to the end of Mr. Heiser's uh, abuse as a child. And the, we know that the church was aware of those, um, those crimes and of the conviction uh, because the church actually got involved in the criminal case and uh, lobbied the court um, for leniency for the perpetrator and helped the perpetrator get a 
uh, a lesser sentence, uh, which of course gave him more access um, to uh, youth in the community. Um, so we can delve into the facts more, but uh, at a high level, um, I think this case uh, shows, you know, a, a concerning uh, occurrence of, you know, direct notice. Of, it was it was crystal clear that this man was a perpetrator of child sexual abuse. The church was aware of it, and he continued to have access to youth in the church despite that knowledge. Now, what what year did he was he criminally prosecuted? Um, he was criminally prosecuted, as as I recall, and convicted in I think nineteen eighty three. And so then he was released. And is there evidence of how many more children he abused because the church lobbied for his release? Well, uh, in our investigation, we're aware that there were there were more children, several more children that were involved with the church that were abused. We think that there were many more beyond what we're aware of. And maybe we'll we'll get to the topic of, um, you know, why in the Mormon church and similar faiths uh, you have particularly low reporting levels. Um, but we also know that this perpetrator, um, Ronald Curley, uh, was a licensed professional counselor in Oregon. Uh, and he remained both a member, a member in good standing in the church and a licensed professional counselor for several decades after this happened. And he was ultimately stripped by the state of his license as a professional counselor because of sexual misconduct with college-aged men uh, during his counseling sessions. So, you know, this is someone who was discovered to be a sexual predator in the early 1980s uh, and was, um, you know, continued to have access to vulnerable people um, for decades thereafter. And, um, you know, the, the church, you know, on paper, um, there's a, there's a documentary record of their lobbying to, um, you know, have a less severe sentence for him. And, and, uh, you know, I think there's a reasonable question in people's minds about, uh, how much more access that gave him because, you know, he got a lighter sentence. So I think this raises an interesting question because, and maybe it's just in our line of work, um, we, we tend to hear a little bit more than, than other people or pay closer attention to it. It seems like I've heard about abuse in the Mormon church for years um, and that it's kind of a well-known secret, but that it's constantly kept secret and not a lot of, we haven't seen the type of action against the Mormon church as we saw in the watershed moment with the Catholic cases or the Boy Scouts. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there's a few reasons. One is um, the Mormon Church and 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 members of the you know LDS community. It's a very insular community. It is a um, it, it's a community where members' whole lives, their social structures, everything is built around uh, their membership in the church. And to a to a greater degree than I would say even the Catholic Church or some other religious entities that we've seen. So for a, for a victim to come forward, they're putting at risk, um, you know, their entire identity, their entire community, their entire support structure. So it takes tremendous courage. They're also taught um, from a very young age, um, you know, uh, values about respecting authority and deferring to the church as 
you know, God's inspired um, body on earth. And so, uh, you know, I think that dynamic is present also in the Catholic church and some other similar situations. But so, so for one, it takes a lot of courage and it takes, uh, there's a lot of risk for victims to come forward. Um, uh, I think in addition to that, um, something historically that has been a challenge is if you were to take a map of where the largest Mormon communities are centered and you compared that to some sort of gradation of civil statute of limitations. Uh, there are a lot of places where Mormonism is um, prolific, where the law does not allow uh, or has not you know, historically allowed victims much opportunity to come forward. So you know, Utah, Idaho, a number of other Western states where statute of limit civil statute of limitations reform has not yet um, been, you know, manifest in, in a real significant way or at all um, means that even for those folks that muster the courage to try to come forward, uh, if they reach out to an advocate, it's likely that they're, you know, given what we know about how long it takes for victims to come forward, it's likely that by the time they do that, uh, because of where their abuse happened, uh, the courthouse doors may be shut to them. Now, how pervasive do you think abuse is within the Mormon church? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, or let me interrupt it and change that even slightly. Does it matter from branch to branch? Where do we stand there? Well, you know, admittedly, most of our litigation has involved the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Salt Lake City. Um, we have not uh, undertaken litigation against um, the FLDS or other offshoots. Um, so I'd have to speak largely from my experience with uh, the LDS in Salt Lake. Um, I guess here's what we know. Um, there was uh, sort of a moment in history in the early 2000s where a group of faithful um, Mormon scholars and thought leaders uh, who were interested in reform um, uh, formed a group called the Mormon Alliance that um, did an in-depth uh, look at some core, a few core um, social issues that they believe needed reform in the um, in the Mormon Church, and they released uh, several volumes um, called the Case Reports of the Mormon Alliance. And one of the, I think it's three or four volumes. One entire volume is focused on sexual abuse uh, and sexual violence in the Mormon church. So I think that that was a snapshot in history. Um, and unfortunately, the church did not respond well to the work of the Mormon Alliance. And a lot of those people were driven out of the church um, uh, and, are, and are sort of you know po post-Mormon um, at this point. Um, but uh, so I think that historically, there's been a very significant child sexual abuse problem in, you know, the LDS church. Um, and we can maybe talk about the reasons for that. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, it has, um, it has the hallmarks of the types of organizations and, and, you know, cultures where we see child sexual abuse happening, not being responded to um, as well as it should have been. And therefore, you know, predators being allowed to be prolific and, um, you know, so I think if you couple that with, uh, you know, a relatively low level of 
of litigation and relatively low um, exposure of of the problem. I think it has. Uh, it's likely that it has, you know, lasted um, much longer. And um, you know, the 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 secrecy around this problem in the church and the extent of it, and the church's intentional efforts to try to keep it quiet. Um, you know, it, it shrouds it shrouds that data a bit and makes it difficult for us to pinpoint. But um, just based on the context that we get and the information we have and the information that's available out there, I think it's been a significant problem and it has been underreported and has not been, uh, you know, I think there are a lot of victims out there who have not received any sort of justice. Now, we've talked quite a bit about, again, the Catholic Church, Boy Scouts. You and I talked about Indian Health Services and each in each of these cases, we kind of see a massive cover up and a playbook almost that that gets distributed across the board. Did they have a playbook here? Was that what was going on in all of these cases? Well, I think there were a couple things that were, you know, historically um, common phenomena when it came to abuse in the Mormon Church. Um, First of all, uh, you have a, a lay leadership structure in the Mormon church that is somewhat different than most churches. Um, the Mormon church does not generally, at least at the local level, which, you know, the, the, the geography in any particular locality is um, broken up by wards, general wards or branches, which is sort of the, the, the parish level, if you're thinking about the Catholic church comparison, um, and stakes um, which are a sort of a hub of multiple wards or branches. Um, and at the local congregation level, at the ward or the branch, um, the, the leadership of that local church is not a, is not a professional ordained leader. It is a um, rotating lay leadership. So a person, a male um, of, of you know, religious standing in the congregation is called every so often um, called being a term of religious, you know, significance, a calling from God, but basically appointed and selected to serve as the bishop of that local congregation. And they serve a, cer- a certain term, um, but they hold another job, another occupation, maybe a dentist or a mechanic or whatever else. And so I think historically the church has, um, has you know, had leadership at the local level that does not have sort of uniform training and education uh, in the same way that uh, churches where there are professional clergy um, may have. Um, you know, I think also when it comes to um, sort of the, the common phenomena, um, you just have the, the insular community that is interested in protecting its identity and protecting its reputation. And this is a uniquely American religion that is focused on growth and expansion. And so when you couple that together with a focus on family values, uh, I think you see a dynamic where there's a lot of emphasis put on portraying a certain image to draw people into the, to the faith. And that, of course, is at odds with uh, the public airing of concerns about misconduct. So there's a lot of pressure to keep things quiet, to deal with them internally. Um, you know, the church has... Um, because of, I think, their concern for their reputation and their desire to um, be viewed in certain ways has, in some instances, been um, more proactive in uh, reaching out to known victims to quietly settle cases, 
directly with victims before they can get a lawyer or file a lawsuit or maybe get information about the full extent of what happened or understand the strength of their legal claims. And so, you know, there's a number of these types of phenomena that um, have allowed uh, the LDS church to uh, keep its abuse problem relatively under wraps. Legal question that might seem basic about some of those settlements. So, I mean, in Scientology, we saw where a California court kicked out their agreements that people could not sue. Um, participants in Scientology, once they left, could not sue. And the court kicked that out and said it was completely unjust. Are the settlements that the church reaches with, with victims upheld? Are they legally binding? You know, I'm not aware of any challenges um, where uh, a victim who entered into, a, you know, directly entered into a settlement agreement with the church um, challenged it and uh, was able to, you know, get a court, court to overturn it on, you know, some sort of theory that it was uh, exploitative. Um so, you know, I guess to their, perhaps partially to their credit, the church has not um, relied on sort of um, uh, preemptive waivers of the right to, uh, to seek justice. Instead, they've been somewhat savvy. And when in, there are instances where they have learned that someone is a victim historically, and there are stories about representatives for the church flying and going to that person's house with a check and saying, gosh, we're sorry. Here's a, you know, what, what we would probably most of us view as a, a, a nominal amount compared to what the case might is probably worth, but, you know, kind of relying on their, um, their faithfulness and their membership in the community and, you know, extending somewhat of an olive branch and resolving those cases directly with, uh, with victims. How did they identify those victims? Were there records? Did they have a suspicion or did the victims come forward? Um, you know, I can think of a number of situations that I've been made aware of, and it's kind of been a mix. Sometimes, um, uh, you know, victims who are still devout are encouraged to share with their current bishops if they have things that they're upset about or struggling with. And uh, what's interesting about the Mormon church in some ways is, although there's, you know, kind of lay leadership and, and somewhat congregational at the local level, it's also, you know, from there, basically a straight line to the headquarters in Salt Lake City. So if a bishop at, you know, the Portland, Oregon ward uh, receives information, they're supposed to call headquarters and headquarters will in Salt Lake City will make the decision about what to do. Uh, or may guide or advise the bishop about how to handle that. So I know there's there have been situations where, you know, a member has uh, directly reported to a bishop, and that's been reported up the chain and and triggered a response from the church. There have been other situations, I believe, where the church has just become aware through maybe existing litigation that of the names of other people who were impacted and have been you know, proactive in reaching out to those folks. So that brings up a multifaceted question, I think. Um, I'm trying to think of how to phrase it. So like you said, we usually want to see, and victims want to see policies that actually change. So has the church started to do any of that in being proactive 
or are they just knocking on doors writing checks? No, I mean, I, I think the church, uh, you know, I think we should give credit where credit is due. And I think the church has undertaken to enact, um, you know, additional youth protection policies and to try to make sure that kids today are safer than kids in the LDS church were in the 70s, 80s and 90s. Um, but I think there's a lot of work to be done. And, you know, I think there's a... Um, uh, from my perspective and my dealings, I think there's a bit of a culture of arrogance when it comes to the leadership's view of their current um, policies and practices. And, you know, they have publicly stated that they have the gold standard of youth protection. And, um, you know, I, I have questions about that. I mean, I, uh, you know, I'm currently involved uh, with a, a matter that um, involves a report to a Mormon bishop um, that happened in, you know, in the last uh, five or six years and the bishop didn't take action. And that child continued to be abused by that perpetrator for a long period of time. And so, um, you know, I think there's a, there's a, there's a danger for any organization to rest on its laurels when it comes to child protection and to say, we have the gold standard uh, even if you have improved things a lot, I think that um, policies are good, but what we really need to see is organizations move from policies to also embracing a culture of child protection. And that means uh, at some level ever vigilance and a constant, um, a constant willingness to review and reflect and think about and take action about um where things can still be improved. How how do we get congregants, and given what you've said about kind of the closed nature of the LDS, how do you think that culture can be changed? Well, I think that um, we have to educate, you know, we have to educate people at a, you know, at a congregant level about what child sexual abuse is, about how to identify it, about the serious long-term implications, because you know, I think if people don't understand how prevalent it is, how it happens, and how serious it is, um, they they don't have the tools to, or or sort of the framework to know that they. And then we have to tell them what to do. And um, so I think there's an education level that, or, or, or education effort that needs to happen. Frankly, among most churches uh, at the congregation level. Um, you know, in addition to sort of the policies and practices of, okay, now that you've seen something concerning, this is what you do. Um, but, you know, there's also just cultural issues that um, are, you know, a, a challenge, I think, when it comes to, um, uh, you know, reporting and, and proactive action. You know, um, in my experience with a number of sort of insular religious groups, one of the things I've always been concerned about is um, in organizations where the voice of women is not um, valued at the same in the same way as the voice of men, um, we're losing out on a huge opportunity to be watchful and to be responsive when there are you know concerning issues. So this leads to an interesting question. Um, with the the Mormon Church going to write checks for folks, and with this Mormon, with the Mormon Alliance reports that you mentioned, are the 
is the Mormon church taking this to a criminal prosecutor or are they allowing the individual perpetrators to stay in the community and continue to offend? Well, uh, that's a complicated answer. I think, uh, I think, I don't know that I think part of the problem is I don't think that, uh, you know, even if there are currently good intentions and good practices identified, I don't know that they're being uniformly um, uh, applied. Uh, I think historically, um, there are, you know, many examples of situations where, you know, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, where perpetrators were not reported to the police. Um, you know, in fact, I think there are a number of situations where that was, um, uh, you know, people were dissuaded from doing that. It was, you know, supposed to be held or dealt with closely, you know, quietly in the church through the church discipline process. And, you know, it, this raises a, I think, an important question, which is still sort of on the frontier of litigation involving the LDS church, because we know that the LDS church, given the sort of hierarchical nature, um, the LDS church has maintained records uh, annotations on membership files, also called sort of red flags. They've maintained documentation uh, in many situations about knowledge that they had regarding, you know, perpetrators and, and what they knew and when they knew it. And um, that's a, a body of, of information that is still um, to be uh, released, you know, still, still sort of a a battleground uh, in in the uh, fight between victims seeking reform and you know um, and the church. So this takes me back to your case, your particular case. That perpetrator was criminally prosecuted and right. then was released. Where is he now? He's still in the community, um, and you know. Uh, I can think of a number of cases I've handled involving the LDS church with very prolific offenders who are in the community because they were not reported uh, adequately or, you know, the, the extent of the information that was known about the number of victims or abuse was not shared. And uh, it was dealt with quietly and internally and um, or victims were, you know, um, not encouraged to come forward. Uh, and so some of the most prolific LDS um, abusers that I have uh, come across are in the community. Are they still active in the church and welcomed into the church as well? Um, you know, that that would vary from person to person. There are some that have been excommunicated by the church or, or kicked out and are not welcome. Um, but I can think of at least one or two that, um, you know, have restrictions placed on them and um, may not be sort of in full good standing, but are still members of the church and still, um, yeah, still allowed to participate at some level. Even though our, our lawsuit uh, did not, what was expressly not about abuse that happened in relation to the church-sponsored scout troop. They were able to get our case stayed, so we're stuck waiting uh, for the uh, bankruptcy court to make its decision in the Boy Scout bankruptcy, uh, because some of the abuse that our clients suffered um, was occurred in the context of the LDS church-sponsored scout troop, 
And uh, even though that's not what we sued in our lawsuit, that's what we sued the LDS church for. We sued them for the abuse that happened in relation to other LDS youth activities. Uh, they were still able to get uh, themselves, um, get the case stayed uh, through the bankruptcy. Are you kidding? No. But the bankruptcy has absolutely nothing to do with whether they're held liable. Does well, it? well, um, the the church's position um, historically in the bankruptcy has been that they should be released for um, claims by any individual who was abused, um, who had any abuse that happened in relation to scouting, even if they have ha had a bunch of abuse that happened unrelated to scouting and other LDS activities. They have taken, they took the position early on. And I don't think, to my knowledge, they haven't backed away from that, that they believe they should be released from the entirety of those claims. Um, we, you know, the court hasn't ruled on that issue, um, but that was at least, uh, and may, maybe they varied their position closer to the confirmation hearings, but, um, and I'm just forgetting that, but uh, certainly for a large part of the case, their position was they should make their contribution to the bankruptcy and that should wipe out the claims of anybody who had any abuse that had any connection to the scouting scout troop. I want to go back to the Mormon Alliance because that seems like a positive step for the Mormon church um, that we wish other religions would take often or other sects of a religion would take, which is to look at themselves unprompted by litigation, but because they want the church to be better. And so they, they do this. What happened to those reports? Were they just shoved to the side? Did the Mormon Alliance make any steps to, to publicize them or to push them out or to send those to the police? Well, um, the Mormon Alliance uh, published their reports and tried to make them, you know, I think as widely available as they could. But it was a grassroots effort by individuals who were reform minded. It was not officially, you know, sanctioned by the church. And, you know, at least my understanding, it was not welcomed by the church. And um, that that a lot of the folks that um, that participated and, and had leadership roles in the Mormon Alliance were, you know, ostracized, marginalized, or, or you know, completely sort of pushed out of, of the church. So, you know, I can't speak to what the LDS church officially did with regards to um, you know, the reports and recommendations of the Mormon Alliance and whether they did any, you know, whether they looked at them or made, you know, adopted any of the recommendations. But my understanding as a, you know, a, uh, as someone who's, you know, looked into it and, and researched a bit and, and read some of the reports is that uh, they were not, they were not welcomed. And um, so I, I, you know, it's, it's on the one hand, I think it's an admirable and, um commendable uh, undertaking that the Mormon Alliance did. And, and, but I, I think it's, it's similar to what we see in other faiths where um, uh, maybe like, you know, what's going on with the Southern Baptist convention and others where um, the, the core leadership of the, you know, real of the headquarters is sort of dragged kicking and screaming by a motivated smaller faction of people that have just had enough and said, Hey, this is not okay. 
we have got to do something about this. And, and it, and it reaches a boiling point where they can't ignore it. But I think it would be, at least from my understanding, it would be inaccurate to, to, to think of the, the work of the Mormon Alliance as sort of the result of, of, um, you know, initiative taken at the church headquarters level. So we're talking about what is the watershed moment going to be? And, and we're at the very beginning of litigation for the LDS church. Why do you think there's such a tight hold on this church? How have they managed to stay so below the radar and, and out of kind of the spotlight on this? Well, I think that, um, you know, the LDS church is, is notable, um, uh, maybe in a quiet way, but for its, uh, for the reaches of its influence and, and, you know, frankly, it's, um, it's wealth and power. Um, you know, I think if you, well, first of all, we don't know the full extent of the wealth of the LDS church, but we know, um, from a number of different sources that it's, uh, it's enormous. Uh, and, you know, with wealth comes power. Um, it's also an organization that has been very intentional about encouraging members to get into positions of, of authority in government, uh, in public service, and, um, and to carefully craft, uh, you know, uh, the image of the church um, as, you know, wholesome and respectable, etc. And then, of course, there are many devout Mormons who are those things, and certainly, you know, don't uh, cast any aspersions on those folks at all. But, um, you know, I think it's a, it's a very wealthy, very powerful organization. It's very hierarchical, and that power and wealth is wielded and held by a very small group of people uh, at the end of the day. And so um, I don't know that we'll ever know all the machinations behind the scenes that allow them to, you know, maintain their image and, 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 and control um, some of the narrative in the ways that they do, but they are active, they are intentional in it. And, um, you know, it's, it's one of the major issues in, in some of the litigation with the church, uh, you know, in places where we can um, seek punitive damages for the egregious conduct of the church, you know, claims for punitive damages open up the church to um, uh, discovery on its finances. And uh, the church has opposed that um, with great vigor, <laughs> and uh, I, I believe will continue to do so. Um, so, you know, I think the significance for victims is, you know, uh, it's a, it, it, you know, these cases are an uphill battle against a large, powerful organization. It's a, a very unique um, uh, culture and a unique set of belief systems and a unique organization that requires some expertise to sort of figure out, you know, where, where things happened and how they happened. Um, but maybe the, um, the silver lining and all that is this is an organization that has the resources to compensate victims. And so if, and when they come to a place, whether on an individual case basis or more holistically where they are ready to do that, um, they're certainly capable of it. And, uh, I think that's the hope for a lot of victims who do come forward is that, you know, real reform will happen and that um, the LDS church will um, make amends for what's happened in its history and, um, you know, embrace 
the changes and, and a culture of protection. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. If you have any questions about your rights after listening to the show, please visit us at victimsofcrime.org. Our guest's information is also always available in the show notes. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association. More information about both organizations is available at victimsofcrime.org and victimbar.org. Thank you, and please join us again next week.